invite you to open in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. We're going to continue our study through the book of Genesis. Uh, the title of the series, Roots of Our Redemption. And again, we're keying in on the fact that uh, God's plan for redeeming people, meaning drawing people back to himself, um, washing us free from the penalty of our sin, that plan had its beginnings um, long before uh, Jesus ever uh, went to the cross of Calvary. And so we see that all the way back in the book of Genesis. And so as we continue this morning, uh, we're going to key in on a very important concept in Scripture that comes up again and again. Um, it's, it's really important for us to grasp this. We re- began the service reading from Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9, and the awesome reality it is that God is with us. And the charge there was to be strong and courageous, because why? God is with you wherever you go. And I think we hear that or we read that uh, and, and we hear teaching on that, but we never really grasp it. And so my hope this morning is that we really step back and, and we marvel at that this morning. Um, you know, the all-consuming presence of God is a dazzling reality for us to consider. I read this uh, earlier in the week. Uh, space is not infinite as some have thought. Only God is infinite, and with his all-consuming presence, he swallows up all of space. Isn't that incredible? Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 24, we read this truth. Can a person hide in secret places where I cannot see him? The Lord's declaration. Do I not feel the heavens and the earth? The Lord's declaration. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27, when Solomon was dedicating the temple, which was to be the dwelling place of God, listen to what Solomon even said. He says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built? Consider this. God is not contained. He is contains. Mm. You know, summer is upon us, and some of you are going to go to the beach soon, and I was trying to come up with a way to illustrate God's presence. And, and every illustration falls short in some way or the other, so please give me some grace on this one. But when, when you go to the beach, I, if you're like me, you like to look out at the wonder of the ocean in front of you. Right, I could care less about getting in the ocean, by the way. I could care less about sitting on the beach and baking in the sun. I don't care anything about that. But I love to look out and marvel at what is before me. As far as the eye can see, there's water. I can't see the endlessness of it. But, but imagine this for a moment. Imagine if you were dropped off in the middle of the ocean and you were bobbing up and down there in the waves There were no boats that you could see, no land that you could see. All you felt was the water around you. As far as you could see, there was nothing except for water. That's what we mean when we talk about the all-consuming presence of God. You see, for many of us, I think our understanding falls short of what it means for God to be with us and falls short of what Scripture teaches We think of God's all-consuming presence or God's presence with his people kind of like a security blanket we carry from one place to the next. And as long as we got God's presence, we're we're good to go. But the reality is, God is all-consuming. He fills 
the universe. Well, we, we talked about that at the beginning of our service when we were praying. You heard me say maybe in the prayer, listen, God, we know that you have filled this room long before we ever walked in here. Just step back for a moment and marvel at what it means for God to be everywhere all at once. Genesis chapter 26 paints a picture of what it looks like to forget about God's presence and the consequences that come from forgetting his presence. It's not that we escape the presence of God. That's impossible. Scripture teaches that. But I think so often as his people, we forget that God is with us and we forget about how that should impact the way that we live. We're going to see in chapter 26 that Isaac, the the child of promise, becomes the focus of Genesis going forward. And he becomes the focus in a most unfortunate way. He forgets that the same God that was with his father Abraham is also with him. But after some unfortunate consequences of the first half of the chapter, we see an astonishing picture of God's grace. And I want this to be what grips us this morning. You see, Isaac forgot God was with him. And God never once turned his back on him. As his servant, God said, no, no, no. I'm going to remind you once again that I'm with you. Maybe this morning you've forgotten that God's with you. Let him remind you, as he has reminded me this week, that he is with us. Consider this if you're taking notes this morning. God's people confidently navigate life's ups and downs when they are reminded that God is with them. You see, it's one thing for us to say or to believe that God is with us. It's another thing entirely for us to live like that. And that's what we're going to see in this passage, that there should be some consequences to that belief. So there's two goals this morning. Number one, I want you to be reminded of God's presence first and foremost. I'll at least get that. But most importantly, and maybe this is really where we want to get to this morning, no matter what you're walking through in life, whether it's a good season or a bad season, I want you to leave here with confidence. I want you to leave here with a greater confidence than you've had before that indeed God is with you. And listen, if you are not a child of God, I want you to understand the implications of what it means to trust in him. I ask you to stand and honor the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. Genesis chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 6. There was another famine in the land in addition to the one that had occurred in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, at Gerar. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land that I tell you about. Stay in this land as an alien, and I will be with you and bless you. For I will give all of these lands to you and to your offspring. And I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give your offspring all of these lands and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Because Abraham listened to me. He kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, I pray that this morning 
your word is clear. Lord, let us leave here encouraged that you are indeed with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If, you, if you've been reading scripture with us this year and, and you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, you're going to notice some, some real similarities already in the life of Isaac. And as we read further, you're really going to see the similarities. And, and these are important and they are intentional uh, and they parallel the life of Abraham, Isaac's father. Uh, like Abraham, God speaks to Isaac and affirms a blessing in his life. And, and that blessing that we just read sounds an awful lot like the way God spoke to Abraham. But also, like Abraham, Isaac experiences a famine during his day. And again, this was, it says there in verse 1, it kind of sets the stage, and, and the writer of Genesis says, hey, I know this sounds an awful lot like what you read about Abraham, but listen, it's a different story, but, but I'm going to uh, teach something through this as well. But then we also see that like Abraham, Isaac fails to walk by faith during that famine. And in fact, what we're going to see is the failure of Isaac is much like his father Abraham. Again, this repetition, it's intentional because it proves God to be gracious to his servants. You know, I don't mind correcting my children one time. Right? As a parent, that's understandable. I understand my children are going to find themselves in error or disobedience every once in a while. What drives you crazy as a parent is what? When you got to correct them multiple times, right? You got to say the same thing again and again. And my patience is exhausted. Well, guess what? What we see in this, Isaac should have understood. Surely he remembers the stories from his father's life and how God was with his father. And yet, man, how quickly he forgets. In verses 1 through 11, we see God do this. Write this down. God graciously corrects his people when they forget his presence. The key word being graciously. It's only by his grace that he continues to correct his children, and we see that happen again in Isaac's life in a situation that was very similar to what Abraham experienced. As we consider how Isaac forgets God's presence, I, I want you to catch something, though, in verse 2 that you probably overlooked because we find this in Scripture again and again. But notice what it says in verse 2. The Lord appeared to him. Isn't that astonishing? The Lord appeared to Isaac. I, I'm not going to have to read between the lines here to teach you what that means. It literally means the Lord appeared to Isaac. That's incredible. Uh, how wonderful would it be if God just appeared to us and said very plainly, hey, this is what I've got planned for you. I promise you, this preacher would sit on the front row and just listen along with us, okay? But listen, God appears to Isaac, how wonderful that is. But even then, even then, Isaac forgets that God is with him. Hmm. Isaac forgot and God was even standing in his presence. Listen, we don't have the luxury of seeing God in that way. And so what does that mean for us? It means that we got to look in through different eyes. And I think this is what Isaac was missing. Although he saw God, he lacked the faith to understand what that really meant. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, we find this teaching. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof or the evidence of what is not seen. That's faith. There is no doubt that Isaac saw God 
before him, but he lacked something that was critical in all of this. And so what Isaac needs to learn really, what we need to learn with him, is what faith really means and how that impacts our understanding of God's all-consuming presence. So let's go to school with Isaac just for a moment, and I want us to consider uh, three lessons that God teaches Isaac and us about faith. Number one in verses two through five, he shows his people that obedience is pointless without faith. Obedience is pointless without faith. I'm not going to read it again, but look back at verses two, three, four, and five. In verses two and three, we find a series of commands. In verse two, God tells Isaac, do not go down to Egypt. In verse two, he also says, I want you to live in the land that I'm going to tell you about. And in verse 3, he says, I want you to stay in this land as an alien. Listen, God could not have been more abundantly clear. I want you to stay put. In verse 5, God goes a little further and he says, hey, remember your dad Abraham? He got it right. And he was this example. And what does it say there? Abraham, he kept these commands of God. And then in verse 6, I just read it a moment ago. What does it say Isaac did? He stayed. At this moment, we want to pat Isaac on the back and say, good job, man. Uh, You listened to what God told you to do. And and hey, he told you to step out in faith, and I want you to stay put. There's a famine, but I don't want you to lean on other people. I want you to stay right where you are. And we really think, well, man, he's doing real good. But you see, faith is pointless, I'm sorry, excuse me, obedience is pointless without faith. You can obey and do all the right things and lack faith, and it's pointless. In James chapter 2, in verses 17 and 18, we hear this very familiar passage of Scripture. James writes, in the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my work. See, we point to this passage and we really want to emphasize works, right? We want, to, we want to put that on the pedestal and say, hey, look, church people, you need to be living like what you believe or what you say you believe. But the reality is in that passage, it's not that these two things are opposites or that works is placed on the pedestal above faith. No, he's saying, listen, if you're going to have faith, you must have work. These things are inseparable. They are one and the same. If you don't have one, you can't have the other. That was the case in Isaac's life. He did all the right things, but he lacked something important. Listen, our faith in God's abiding presence drives us towards obedient action. Unfortunately, we're a lot more like Isaac than we'd like to admit. Uh, We want to check all the boxes, right? We want to do all the right things. We want to make sure we're at church when we're supposed to be there, and we want to Make sure we're in Sunday school and we read our Bible when we should and, and, and we hang out with good Christian folk and all those things. Listen, but all of that without really seeing God's presence is pointless. Listen to verses 7, 8, and 9. Watch what happens. Before we pat Isaac on the back, I want you to hear what happens. When the men of the place asked about his wife, so this is the, the men of Gerar, the place where he had settled, he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking the men of the place will kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is a beautiful woman. 
When Isaac had been there for some time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, he looked down from the window and was surprised to see Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. Abimelech sent for Isaac and said, uh, so she is really your wife. How could you say that she is my sister? And Isaac answered him, because I thought I might die on account of her. Now this, again, if you remember Abraham's life in chapter 12 in particular, this sounds an awful lot like what Abraham did. He told the very same lie for the very same reason and had the very same consequences. But here's the reality. Through Isaac's faltering faith, we learn this second lesson. Number two, he shows his people that fear is not compatible with faith. What motivated everything that Isaac did that we just read about? Fear. Fear. He said, it says there that he was afraid of the consequences. And so what did he do? It led him into sin. I read it this way. Isaac, so human and frail, he mixed fear with his faith. And it is this fear that led to this shameful lowness and meanness of sin. More than that, if you look carefully, he put God's promise in jeopardy. This was Rebecca, his wife. Remember the promise of God was many offspring. Well, guess what? To have many offspring, you gotta have a wife. And so what was he willing to do? He was willing to put the promise of God at stake to save his own neck. If asked, I am certainly sure that Isaac would have affirmed, at least theologically, that God was with him. My goodness, God had just said, I am with you or I will be with you. But practically, he failed to live out this belief. Again, it's one thing for us to affirm that God is with us. But it is quite another for this belief to dominate and inform the way that we live. What about when you get that cancer diagnosis you didn't see coming? Are you consumed with fear or faith? What about the death of a precious loved one? Are you consumed with fear or faith? What about that tragedy you never saw coming? Fear or faith? Perhaps most troubling about this situation is this third lesson, how damaging it was to Isaac's testimony to those who were watching. Notice this in verses 10 and 11. God shows his people that their witness is ineffective without faith. Look with me at verses 10 and 11, the fallout from this whole incident. Then Abimelech said, what is this that you've done to us? One of the people could easily have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. And so Abimelech warned all the people, whoever harms this man or his wife will certainly be put to death. Church, what a sad circumstance it is when unbelievers call out the sin of supposed believers. That's exactly what happens here in Genesis 26. Notice if you look back at verse 8, who was Abimelech? It says there in verse 8, he was the king of the Philistines. By the way, who were the Philistines? They were the enemies of God's people. You know that old story, David and Goliath? Guess who Goliath was? He was a Philistine. So picture this. This is the king of the Philistines, the king of the enemies of God's people, and he is calling out, not just any old guy, but he's calling out the sin of Isaac. You say, well, how could Isaac put all of this at stake? And to that I respond, how could we 
put all of this at stake. I want to talk to you just for a moment about a group of people I like to call the de-churched. The de-churched. You've heard of the unchurched before. Uh, The unchurched people in our culture, those are the people who have never once been around the church before. Those are the people who have never walked through the doors of a church before. They have no religious knowledge whatsoever. And I'm going to tell you something. The unchurched, those are few and far between in our culture, particularly in the southeastern part of the United States. There aren't a whole lot of unchurched people anymore. They've at least been here once. But I'm going to tell you what the prevailing numbers in the population are. The de-churched. You see, the de-churched, those are the people who have been to church before. Those are the people that have maybe even been a member of a church. Those are the people that that may have even been a part of a Sunday school class or they were a practicing part of a church family and now they find themselves not in church at all. And why? If I had a nickel for every time someone said, well, I used to go to church until so-and-so told this lie to save his own hide. Right? Or I used to go to church until I saw brother so-and-so do this out in public and... There's no way that as a believer he should do that. Or I used to be a part of the church until I realized the pastor was a hypocrite. Right? How many times have you heard that story? More than we would like to admit. In fact, some of you that are in this room right now, by the grace of God, you are only back in church by the grace of God because you've overcome that stigma of being the de-churched because you've told me those same stories. I'm going to challenge us just context for a minute. And keep in mind, I I am a member of First Baptist Cave Spring. I love it here. But in a community the size of ours, when we claim to be the heart of Christ in the heart of Cave Spring, God help us, God have mercy on us, if we don't hold up our end of the witness. Isaac failed to do so. I'm afraid to admit how many times we do as well. Isaac had really made a mess of this situation. And don't forget that this chapter began in verse 2 with God appearing to Isaac, affirming that he would be with him. But I want you to see how God responds to Isaac's failure. He doesn't cast him to the side. He doesn't give up on him. Notice this, number two. God graciously, there's that word again, graciously reminds his, remains with his people so others may experience his presence. God graciously sticks with us. God graciously never gives up on his people. God graciously never gives up on Isaac as we read further. I want us to see four reasons God stays, four reasons God stays with us. And I'm gonna go ahead and spoil it for you. None of these reasons have anything to do with having a warm and fuzzy feeling inside. Right? That's what we want, right? We want, man, I, I want to be reminded of God's presence so I can have that warm and fuzzy when I leave here. That's not the point. First, notice this. He stays with his people to demonstrate his power. His power. Look at verses 12 through 16. It says there, Isaac sowed seed in that land. And in that year, he reaped a hundred times what was sown. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and kept getting richer until he was very wealthy. He had flocks of sheep, herds of cattle, and many slaves. And the Philistines, notice this, were envious of him. 
The Philistines stopped up all of the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of his father Abraham, filling them with dirt. Those rotten scoundrels, I tell you what. And Abimelech said to Isaac, notice this, leave us for you are much too powerful for us. Isaac prospered. That's very clear. Those of you who do a little farming, you understand in verse 12 how remarkable it is that the return on his first harvest was a hundredfold. Make note also, if you go back to the beginning of this chapter, what were they, experience, what were they experiencing in the land? A famine. So not only was this an incredible return on the crop, but it happened in the middle of a famine. And so verse 16 happens. This hostility with Abimelech, the same one that Isaac had wronged before. And then I won't read all this to you, but verses 18 through 22, I call this the, the well-digging crusade. And if you read it, it's kind of humorous at what happens here. In verse 18, it says that they, they reopened the wells that the Philistines had closed. In verse 19, it says there that they found a spring of water. They had to do that by doing what? A lot of digging. In verse 20, there was an internal conflict between uh, Isaac's shepherds. Why? Because they needed more wells. Everything was wrapped up in water, right? It's a famine. Don't miss that. So in verses 21 and 22, guess what they did? They dug two more wells. Lots of well digging going on. And here's why that's important. There's, there's a reason why the writer of Genesis mentions this again and again and again. Because it highlights that only God could make this happen. What does it say there? God blessed Isaac. They found a spring of water in the middle of a famine. A hundredfold return on a crop in the middle of a famine. His flocks, they grew. Why? Because they found more water in the middle of a famine. Only God could do this. And Abimelech, he knew it. In verse 16, what did he say? You are much too powerful for us. Listen, we know that Isaac wasn't the one who was powerful, right? It was God. God stuck with Isaac to prove himself powerful and he does the same thing with his people today Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9 his power is made perfect in our weakness unfortunately we are wired to be thieves of God's glory here's how we know that's true we like to pat ourselves on the back when something good happens right if you want to see a really unfortunate picture of this, go hang out with a bunch of pastors at lunch one day. <laughs> really, and I love my brothers. I love hanging out with them. Uh, but sometimes all they want to talk about, man, we, we want to talk about what God's doing at our church. Man, hallelujah, praise God, but listen to what God's doing at our church. I can tell you that because I, I is one. I've been there, okay? L listen, we, we want to do that, right? That's who we want to be. I use myself as a negative example because I know the same thing's true about you. We want to be thieves of what God is really doing through us. It's not us, but it's God. We know because we're reading it that God had blessed Isaac, and yet Abimelech didn't know that just yet. Oh, but he's going to find out. Watch what happens. Notice this second lesson 
Second reason God stays with his people. Number two, he stays with his people to affirm his nearness, to affirm that he is close. Look closely at verses 23 and 24. From there, he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him. Mm, That's so good. The Lord appeared to him that night, and listen to what he said. I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you, and I will multiply your offspring because of my servant Abraham. I want you to go back to verse 3, the first appearance of God to Isaac. Look at it with me. Go back to verse 3. Notice what God says when he appears to Isaac then. Look at it. He says, I will be with you. Future tense. An assurance of his presence in the future. I'm going to be with you. But notice what he says in verse 24. Notice the change. What's he say? I am with you. Church, that's important. It's important because there's a key shift in this understanding. Because back then, when the famine was happening, oh my goodness, did Isaac ever need to hear that? I will be with you. And what did he do? He turned his back on God, and he didn't trust in the Lord's presence, but he, and he didn't cling to faith, but he trusted in himself, and he leaned into fear. And instead of God saying, no, no, oh man, I can't deal with Isaac anymore, what does he say? He steps a little bit closer, and he says, not only will I be with you, I am with you. Church, it doesn't matter how many times we fail our God. We are never outside the reach of his grace. Doesn't matter. Listen, if you've never wrestled with this thing we call grace and you're a non-believer, I want you to understand something. As a non-believer, there is only one difference between you and me. I have taken hold of God's grace in my life. That same grace is available to you. You say, oh no, I've, I've messed up. You don't know how many times I've made a mess of my life. You are never outside the reach of God's grace. And guess what? That means you are never outside the reach of his presence. Verse 25, we see Isaac's response. Note this third reason that God abides with his people. Number three, he stays with his people to teach them contentment. To teach them contentment. Notice verse 25. It says there, so he built an altar there. He called on the name of the Lord. He pitched his tent there. And guess what? Isaac's servants, they dug a well there. The well digging crusade continued. A few things talk about Isaac's contentment. I want you to see all three of them. Number one, he built an altar. He built an altar in his life to commemorate God's ever-abiding presence. It gripped him when God said, I am with you. I love this, though. It says that he, he put his tent stakes in the ground. He pitched a tent. And you say, what's the big deal about that? Listen, this meant that he put some stakes in the ground, quite literally. He, he said, I am content in the presence of God. You know, if you took a look at my resume, you would see... Um, my average time anywhere is about two years. Uh, what, no matter what job it was, 
About two years, I stuck around everywhere. Sheree and I were commenting the other day, we were working at the house, and we were talking about how many houses we've lived in, and we're only 34 years old. And we've lived everywhere from here to the other side of the globe. And so at about two years in, we, again, I mean, when you moved around that much, about two years in, you're thinking, man, we've, we've been here a while. We've been here a while. It hadn't been long at all, but we've been here a while. And so we began to put some stakes in the ground. You know what the stakes were for us? A chicken coop. <laughs> Y'all knew it. Y'all knew it before I said it. A chicken coop. You know why? I remember my dad, when he was talking to me, he, we were talking about the chicken coop, and he said, oh, son, don't build that chicken coop unless you're planning on hanging out a while because that's going to bring the value of your house down in suburbia of Cedartown. Right there, you can see it. If you, you go to our neighborhood, we drive up the hill there, and there's houses just kind of everywhere, and then you drive by, past my house, and you can kind of see over in the backyard, there's the chicken coop. That chicken coop, when I was building, I remember this so vividly. When I was building that chicken coop, and I was digging those holes by hand, I was thinking to myself, these are stakes in the ground. This means something. That's what happened in Isaac's life. Church, he was so content in the presence of God, in the power of God, in the faith of who God was, he put some stakes in the ground. Number four, he stays with his people ultimately to advance his mission. I told you it wasn't about us. It wasn't about Isaac. It wasn't about warm and fuzzies. It was about him. Notice what happens in verses 26 through 28. I told you Abimelech did not quite get it. And here he gets it. Now Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, why have you come to me? You hated me and you sent me away from you. They replied, oh, this is good. We have clearly seen how the Lord has been with you. Notice the shift in understanding. Before, they said, you are much too powerful for us. Get out of here. And now they said, we have seen how the Lord has been with you. Remember in verse 3, what did it say? That first statement about God's presence. God says what? I will be with you, future tense. Verse 24, what does he say? I am with you, present tense. Isn't it good that in verse 28, this culminating statement about God's presence does not come from the mouth of God. It comes from a Philistine king. He says, the Lord has been with you. In other words, as we read this whole chapter, we see a picture of God's all-consuming, unmistakable, overwhelming Awesome presence. Notice this also in verse 20. I know time's running short, but I want you to see this. When he says the Lord has been with you, that word Lord is in all capital letters. And if you've been reading scripture a while, you know that that is the personal name of God. That signifies the personal name, Yahweh, God. 
If you're new to scripture reading, understand that as you read throughout the Old Testament, when you see Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital letters, that means the personal name of God. So this Philistine king not only identified the, the past presence of God in Isaac's life, but he said, it's got to be the personal God who was with you. Verses 29 through 31. I won't read it to you, but a good Baptist meal happens. They throw a banquet. Everybody gets around, says they eat and they drink. They're celebrating. Why? Because God is present. Verse 32, I'm going to go ahead and spoil it for you. I love this. It comes full circle and they dig some more wells. God's people can confidently navigate life's ups and downs when they are reminded that God is with them. So believer, I've got a few questions for you. Do you believe that God will be with you like we have seen? If so, you got a reason to have some hope. Do you believe that God is presently with you walking through whatever mess you're walking through? Guess what? You can have some peace. Do you believe and have you seen evidence that God has been with you? That when you sing, how great is our God, and you sing about his all-consuming presence, that should mean something a little more significant. But most importantly, because God is with you, again, it's not about you. It's not about Isaac. It's not about me. It's about him. It's about his mission and his glory to the ends of the earth. That's why the parting words from Jesus in Matthew 28 and verse 20, what were his last words to his disciples? You know it. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. As we go on mission together in this community and to the ends of the earth, we go in the presence of an almighty God. But non-believer, person who is not walking in relationship with Jesus, I got a question for you. How do you expect to walk through tragedy, difficulty, and pain without an understanding that God is with you. How do you expect to do that? This past week in Cave Spring, we had a tragedy hit our community. A little one lost his life. Y'all have seen, I'm sure, the, the news headlines about this happened just down the road here. By the way, the sibling of that child is a student at our learning center. Uh, the teachers there know this family well. And, and it was a complete accident, tragedy. It was, it was unexplainable how this happened, okay? The part that burdens me most, uh, obviously the loss of the, the child, the loss of human life, but the pain of this family, but from best I can gather, from best I can gather based on testimony from others, this family, they don't want have a church family. They're not walking with the Lord. And as I pondered that and I meditated on that, I asked that question again. How? I, I know experiencing that with the Lord is almost impossible. But could you imagine for a moment walking through that tragedy without Jesus by your side? You say, now that, that was down the road, Pastor. That wasn't my family. That wasn't us. Listen, Tragedy is called tragedy for a reason. It's unexpected. And how do you expect to walk through such tragedy 
apart from an understanding that God is with you. By His grace, He calls you into relationship with Himself. I encourage you, whether it be right now at the end of our service, you, you submit to that call in your life to relationship with Him, or please let me know soon. I would love to walk with you through that, how to make a decision to trust Christ as your Savior.